Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting for a second time with technologist and financier, Tom Chi. Hi, Tom. Hey there. How are you today? Pretty good. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and we've got a, a lot to cover, obviously. Absolutely. Tom Chi is the founder of At One Ventures which has already deployed over a hundred million dollars into several companies working on regeneration stewardship and sustainability technologies. Some of these companies include Iron Ox, which is robotic agriculture, uh, Dendra Systems, which is drone tree planting, uh, True, which is advanced air conditioning, uh, Wild Earth, sustainable pet products, Apis Core 3D printed low carbon geopolymer cement and robotic masonry uh, and several others and is in the middle now of a second fund which is looking to deploy somewhere in the vicinity of 300 million dollars in the coming months and quarters and uh, we're, we're so excited Tom to see uh, the progress with all that you're doing with these important technologies and to hear that uh, the first fund has has gone so well. And just in case some of our audience don't know, just to give a little more on your background, you know, Tom went to Cornell University and prior to launching At One Ventures, uh, did a number of technology pro projects and products with companies like Microsoft Outlook, Yahoo Search, Google, etc., and uh, was involved in the Google Glass and Google self-driving car uh, development efforts. And so, yeah, we're going to we're going to have a lot of talk about today, including some specific uh, technologies. Some of the view you have into the phases of our economic development relative to sustainability technologies. We'll chat a little bit about AI even. And uh, to kick things off, Tom, I just thought I'd uh, ask you openly, um, you know, how, how are things at At One Ventures and, and what, what's happening that's got you uh, excited at this time? Yeah, things are going very well. We, as you mentioned, we raised 150 million fund one and we did 27 investments in that fund. And that fund is off to kind of a flying start, you know, relative to uh, peers that started in the same year around the same size we're in the top two percent and not just for climate but for across all types of funds and all types of sectors so yeah just outperforming the market by quite a bit on that front and we are mostly done raising a 300 million dollar fund too uh, though that is open until um you know toward the end of july Wonderful. And I imagine you're already eyeing a number of investment opportunities and probably it's not at this stage appropriate to talk about many of them or any of them in great detail. But I'm curious if you're seeing emerging trends in the technology as it relates to sustainability, as it relates to ecology restoration, as it relates to uh, climate change mitigation. Are you seeing anything that's emerged in the last several months since you launched Fund One? Well, to be clear, we we started Fund One, you know, over three years ago at this point. So there's a lot that we saw, and a lot of it's well represented in the portfolio of 27. For Fund Two, we did our first close in Fund Two last summer, 
So we've already had some time with fun too, but you basically open up the fundraising window for a little bit. So, you know, there's some time for folks to come in. So we are actually already have eight uh, investments in fun too, including, for example, the first vaccine to protect honeybees ever created and also now USDA approved as of December of 22. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that we know colony collapse disorder has been one of the greatest threats to our global food supply. I imagine you could speak to some of the facts and figures on that. Absolutely. And colony collapse disorder is basically a, a rough way that people had been kind of describing the output of things. Now, sometimes it was related to things like, you know, American foul brood, European foul brood, which is the types of diseases that this vaccine protects against, because those tend to be the types of diseases where the whole hive fails at once, as opposed to, um, you know, things that hit individual bees, but may not be as damaging to an entire hive. But if I want to go uh, help characterize the major stressors for bees, there's, there's three major stressors. One of them is neonicotinoid pesticides, which are widely used all throughout North America. They're kind of ostensibly banned in Europe, but there's a lot of you know agriculture that is grandfathered in where they continue to use it at pretty large scales, uh, effectively everywhere in the world. Another one is a type of parasite called the Vera destructor mite, uh, which like, you know, if you were to scale it up to a human size, it'd be like the size of a dinner plate on a human. That's like what, you know, like a 12 inch dinner plate on a human. Like that's how big it is compared to a bee proportionally. And, you know, a bee can like live with one, a mite, but if it ends up with two, three mites, then it's kind of a metabolic drag at a level that it really weakens everything about the mite. And then the, sorry about the bee. And then the third uh, category is these diseases, which is the stuff that the vaccines are meant to address. Yeah. Wow. That's great to hear. I've heard, um, some many billions of dollars worth of food production and some significant portion of everything we consume as humans comes from bee pollinated crops. Yeah, so the majority of, of uh, biomass on the planet is actually angiosperms, which are flowering plants. Uh, it's like 80%. And given that it, the role of pollinators, you know, just even beyond the basic food system is enormous. And we have been both damaging the pollinators within our food system. And if folks really want to dive into this, the University of Maryland is has been running the kind of the industry benchmark reports in terms of annual bee losses from the commercial perspective. You can just, you know, search the the words that would make sense given that sentence to be able to find it. Not too hard to find. And you can kind of track the kind of losses that we've been having. I'll short circuit it and say that we've been losing 40 to 50% of the commercial bees per year every single year. So it is very, you know, dramatically impactful to the industry. This is not a thing where it's like a minor hit and they're just working around it easily. This is a thing that uh, is leading to a very bad situation um, because we have fewer and fewer bees, which means we need to split more hives in order to try to get more bees, which actually reduces the genetic diversity. And then because we don't have enough bees, then we we bring them all to a couple places. You know, North America, like, most of the commercial bees in North America go to Southern California for, for the, almond, uh, the, the, the almond crop in January and February. And the combination of reducing genetic diversity and then concentrating everybody in the same spot at the same time, that's like a recipe for a total collapse. Anyway, put that aside for a second. That's just the commercial stuff. 
in the larger picture of the you know eighty percent of you know of biomass that is is uh, flowering plants, then it means that all these pollinators are, are out there, not just the honeybees, but there's all these pollinators that are out there that are critical to biodiversity on the planet. And because of the way that we've been doing agriculture and because of how widespread agricultural practices across the world, then we have been um, both killing the honeybees, which you know we obviously keep you know better stats on, but we are accidentally killing a bunch of pollinators. And for you know, if you follow the work of Charles Darwin, then you'll you'll know about like the 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 moth with the eleven inch proboscis, and he kind of theorized that this moth must exist because there's a plant with like a you know like a ten or eleven inch like you know like depth that you would need to get to to be able to successfully pollinate it. And actually, a lot of life on Earth is like that, where there is literally only one pollinator, or there might be a primary that does 90% of it and a secondary that does 10% of it. And what has been happening is we have been accidentally extincting or massively impacting the, the populations of plants around the planet by hitting pollinators that weren't even what we we're trying to hit with our pesticides, right? We were trying to go deal with some some specific agricultural pests in the field, not these pollinators, but we have been kind of hitting across the board and it is both affecting, um, you know, the biodiversity of those pollinators, of course, directly, but also what they pollinate. A bunch of species are starting to go extinct because we just killed all their pollinators. Yeah, we uh, did an episode a while back with Scott Black, the executive director of the Xerces Society that's doing so much to help educate and mobilize the public around these issues with pollinators and other invertebrates uh, specifically. And uh, just recently was also interviewing a Chelsea Green author um, talking about wood chip in uh, agricultural uh, gardens and orchards and other settings in order to help rebalance the fungal to bacterial uh, ratios in the soil ecosystems. And similarly, the, the broad scale use of pesticides has severely disrupted underground. We've got the pollinators and invertebrates above ground, and then we've got this other set of uh, ecosystem members below ground where we've essentially been uh, systematically destroying the fungal species and have seen an increase in the bacterial species uh, bringing the soil ecosystems out of balance as well. And so this is a, an above and below kind of two-pronged situation. It's so important that we're addressing, right? And I'm curious if you're doing any work with soil-related uh, regeneration at this point with your portfolios. Yeah, actually, one of our uh, fund two companies is called Miraterra, and they basically have created the, you know, the most accurate way of being able to go measure the compounds that are in soil. And the technology is such that you could do the stuff in field, you could, you know, measure everything and change your your treatment plan if you're a farmer within the same day, as opposed to right now, you would typically need to go around and take a bunch of soil samples, a bunch of soil cores, send them to a soil testing lab, wait for weeks or months. By the time the stuff gets back, it's like other management practices have happened in between. You've applied fertilizer, you've applied, you know, herbicide, you've applied different things that might actually change that profile. So we've never been able to just like understand where the soil is right now and then be able to make smart management choices. And because of that, you know, it's estimated that the application of the 
the most common inputs into agriculture are massively overapplied right now. And this is, you know, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, is kind of like the, the classic, like super trio. And then depending on what you're growing, then there will be different, you know, micronutrients and, and others that you will track uh, because it's important for that crop type. But NPK is pretty common across the board. So something like this will would allow you to kind of go into the field, understand NPK literally right there and be able to go, you know, adjust how you were applying things in the field immediately. And and by our estimates, it could move into the territory of doubling farm incomes, um, just given the nature of the current margins and the percentage of the cost structure that currently goes to over-application. And the wow. over-application helps nobody, right? If yeah. you put extra nitrogen on the field, you're like, oh, maybe it stays fertile for the next year. No, it doesn't. Basically becomes nitrous oxide, uh, oxide emissions, which is basically the third most you know, um, prevalent greenhouse gas that we are producing at scale after carbon dioxide and methane. So it helps nobody. The farmer wasted money that could have been money in their pocket. You know, the, the environment is further hurt. The soil is not improved in any way from it. So to be able to go fix this, fix multiple problems, including the kind of runoff that leads to eutrophication downstream. Yep. Now These there is no, one, no, other, no. one other like benefit and tweak to this is in the process of being able to like grab NPK, the same instrument doesn't just get three things. It can actually, you know, assess everything that it's trained for. So we could train the thing to actually pick up hundreds of interesting compounds, including all those micronutrients, but notably be able to go measure soil carbon directly. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are out there. It's like, well, if I fly this satellite and we use synthetic aperture radar and we interpolate the points right, then one can presume that the soil carbon levels, blah, blah, blah. And I would just tell you that it's really hard to pull that off. You're just very far away from the thing you're trying to measure. And a farmer walking their field, just kind of pointing this instrument and a number of things, you can get insanely more accurate. And if you wanted to be able to enroll farmers into you know, the larger system of carbon markets, then it's helpful to be able to just get very accurate measurements close up. Now, besides the fact that um, you know, it's been hard to measure in the past, the other reason that carbon markets haven't been that interesting to farmers is you know, your land might sequester you know, one to three tons per year per acre, right? We'll just kind of put it in a reasonable range. Look, it can do less than that for sure, you know, but certainly farmers have been able to get into that range. And if that's the case, if you look at the voluntary carbon markets right now, Maybe you're going to net yourself eight dollars, ten dollars, twelve dollars, you know, at the end of the year on an on a acre that might top line a thousand dollars. So you can understand why people don't completely change their management approaches to get eight more dollars on a thousand. Now look, their margins are way worse than that. Maybe their take home from the thousand dollars is only sixty dollars. But even then, it's like, do you change the management practice for everything and put yourself in kind of this unknown space? in order to try to nudge things up by $8, it's not, it's not that you know, compelling to most farmers. But if you actually have an instrument where they're going out there and measuring NPK, which is what they want to do anyway, because you might save $100 on, on fertilizer and inputs or $150, and you get this very material to your, to your net profitability, then, um, then 
in the process of doing that, you actually automatically got the carbon measurement, then it just becomes a bonus on top of something that you were going to do anyway. And the one last thing I'll say about this tech, which I think is very, very compelling, is that unlike, you know, neutron backscatter or a bunch of these, you know, other kind of near-infrared spectroscopy approaches, which have a bunch of different limitations, not only will we be able to go and, and measure that carbon directly, we will be able to go tell the difference between, you know, short labile carbon, long labile carbon, and mineralized carbon. And in these markets, people have a, a add a huge price premium for things that are kind of mineralized because we know that to stay in the in the soils in a pretty stable state for thousands of years, sometimes tens of thousands of years, right? And then labile carbon, short labile carbon might be in an organism and then back out in the atmosphere in five days. You know, long labile might be in there for, you know, five years, 10 years, you know, hundred years, but you know, it will come back out in a bit. But to be able to understand the relative proportions and kind of teach farmers from that direct measurement uh, to be able to, to manage things in a way that massively improve their profitability, but also kind of creates that on-ramp for uh, a relationship to carbon markets. It's, it's very exciting on a bunch of fronts. We, we could not be uh, more excited about the kind of forward potential of, of that type of tech getting into the world. Oh, it's so wonderful. So that's Mira Terra. And just uh, for some of our audience that may not know the term eutrophication, this is essentially when we overload uh, in water environments, the nutrient uh, density, uh, we lead to essentially oxygen starved uh, uh, situations leading to major dead zones in many of our river uh, deltas worldwide. And so uh, this is a, a really significant issue where our major river systems meet the oceans of the world. And I, I didn't it catch it. It's the highest form of water pollution in the, in, in the world by volume. And it has very substantial ecological effects. Yeah, yeah. I didn't catch the name of the honeybee vaccine company if you mentioned it and, and want to share it. That's called Delan Animal Health, E-A-L-A-N. Cool. Um, I want to be sure to share with our audience also, Tom, this wonderful talk that you gave at uh, one of your annual general meetings and shared with me and, and with our Why on Earth community state of the planet talk. Um, and we're going to make this available in the show notes and probably through the Why on Earth uh, community blog page for folks to check it out themselves. You know, in this talk, uh, you mentioned several really interesting things about emerging technologies, about some of the trends that you're tracking. And one of the things specifically that struck me was your characterization of these four different uh, epochs in our economic development, our technology development, as it relates to things like ecosystem stewardship, regeneration, climate stabilization. Um, and so on, which and, and the way you characterize these, it begins with epoch zero. Um, can, can you walk us through this framework and tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so, you know, I'm glad you'll be able to kind of post it for folks to see the full talk because full talk's like an hour. So there's no way yeah. I'm going to be able to fit it in like a five minute answer or whatever. But it's called the three epochs of ecological technology. Because uh, there's three where you're actually trying to get better relative to the relationship of economy to ecology. And then the zeroth one is the one we're in right now, which is the fully extractive economy. 
So Epoch Zero is the extractive economy. And the gist of, of the extractive economy is that re, you know, natural resources are understood to be commodities. Uh, you know, people achieve financial leverage by basically scaling extraction. So if you can, if the same equipment can cut down twice as many trees in a day, then boom, that's scale, guys. That's how we get leverage. And then economic indicators in that, you know, in that kind of framework, which is remember the framework of today tend to either be uncoupled, but often more often antithetical to ecological goals. So like on one hand, you might look at that and you say like, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. The same machine or like, you know, version 2.0 of that machine can cut down twice as many trees per day. Yeah, I make a lot more money like that. It's a big economic win. But you can see how that's like directly against, you know, the ecological health indicators. So effectively, like in this current epoch, to run an economy, we cannot help but destroy the ecology. Now, if you if you think about where we could be going instead of that, because it's like, well, you know, what are we even talking about? You're just describing the world today. Is there any other thing you could do? Then the epoch beyond that is called the material productivity economy. And the gist of material productivity is it asks a slightly different question. It asks, you know, um, well, first it recognizes that, you know, instead of resources uh, just being commodities, that resources, you know, natural resources are still commodities in this framework, but that, but with practical natural limits. And we actually see a bunch of economic frameworks, whether it's donut economics or whether it's, you know, that, that, or like the, the, the different kind of analyses of like, oh, we're using three and a half earths of this resource, that kind of thing that are basically trying to talk about the commodities with practical limits kind of thing. So all of that thinking fits in a material productivity epoch, uh, which by the way, there's still two more epochs beyond that. So, uh, you know, but that said, this is the epoch which is closest to us. And the, because of it, it's the one that we can most practically work on today. But getting to it, if you understand that commodities have practical limits, then what it means to get better at a material productivity economy is you ask yourself the question, well, how do I get more financial leverage by more judicious and, and effective use of the same amount of material or the same amount of energy? So for example, like if I go and take a handful of sand, a handful of sand could be sold to the construction market for literally pennies, right? Fraction of a penny for a handful of sand. But the same amount of mass in a handful of sand could be used to go make 100 microchips. And that might, you know, that might get you back like $5,000 worth of top line revenue compared to, you know, if you're selling it to like a, through a sand and gravel situation to, to, to construction, it might be one penny. Now, that was the same amount of physical material. We had to do different things to it, but like we got more material productivity out of it. That's why it's called the material productivity epoch. And the same sort of question around materials can be asked around, um, around energy. So for each, you know, kilowatt or joule or BTU, you pick your favorite, you know, unit of energy, then how do we get the most benefit? Um, whether it's economic benefit, benefit social, social benefit, um, you know, ecological benefit, that's the question that the material productivity epoch asks of us. Now, like I said, this is the one that's closest to us. And most of the folks that talk about sustainability are talking about different variations of this epoch. But, you know, in our work, and if people spend time with the, with the talk, then you will hear that there's a couple epochs beyond this. So, um, so, and 
the next epic is kind of the first really big jump. So epic two, because everything until now is like, look, natural resources are commodities. We just got to be smarter with it. You know, we need to have an outer ring to the donut. We need to have an inner ring to the donut. Hey, right. Like we just got to be smarter about some of these things. But epic two is the first big jump. And this is basically, instead of understanding natural resources as, as commodities, what if we understood you know, the actual resource is healthy ecosystem metabolics. So not nouns, not the nouns of tonnage of wood extracted, lumber extracted, not the nouns of, you know, like a tonnage of like mined ore extracted, which is the way that we think about economic growth right now and resources right now, but like thinking in turn, which are also nouns, right? Those are basically... Um, just like this is a thing that I can sell you, it's a noun. If instead you have the big shift of starting to think about ecosystem metabolics, you start to understand the resources of the verb. The watershed is a verb. For a watershed to be healthy actually creates an enormous amount of economic value. Now we find out that it's an enormous amount of economic value when we mess it up, right? When we dam it or we mess up the poison the groundwater or or like, you know, uh, put a bunch of fertilizer in there so it's eutrophied and so on and so forth, right? Like we find out later that, oh my gosh, this was actually the resource. Now, what is a watershed? A watershed is not a noun that I can like pick up and sell you. Like I can sell you like a, a couple tons of timber or, or I can sell you a couple, you know, tons of a specific extracted ore or even like a service, right? Like a, a, like a watershed is effectively only healthy if the verb is going right. Mm -hmm. And you need to like get out of that mindset of like, oh, well, what even happens on a market exchange? A market exchange is basically selling nouns. Oh, this stock is a noun and it represents a company that does this type of extraction and, the, and that's a bunch of nouns. And da, da, da. If you get out of that entire thinking, if you get out of that line of thinking entirely and you start to understand we are only here because of a series of healthy you know, ecological metabolic verbs. And to the extent that we start to treat those verbs as actually the core of where economic, you know, wealth comes from, then we will start treating the whole thing quite differently. Now there's been a bunch of like, you know, partial stabs at this. So for example, valuing nature-based services is an example of that. But in a way that's kind of taking the verb and trying to move it back into a noun frame and be like, see, like it's worth this as opposed to the ore that you would have got was worth that, right? But the problem with that frame is you're not valuing the metabolics directly. And because you're not valuing it directly, we might discover a new type of ore that is just more valuable than the ecosystem service. And all of a sudden, it all explodes. So like, I'm not saying that people should not do that type of work. I'm just saying that it, it has programmed in it a type of fragility because the foundational thought process is still trading nouns in a market as opposed to the verbs are, are the source of all economic value and in a way they are sacred. Uh, and actually the, the question of sacredness is a, a pretty deep one on this where you know, it is often said we live in this market economy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, the, and I know we're gonna talk a, a, a bit, you know, and we can talk about that next actually after I talk about the epics about you know, economy, economics as a design discipline as opposed to a science. But right now we live in this kind of market economy um, or we all kind of believe in it in enough uh, that that's the current way that economics is designed. And because of it, like everything has a price. 
which means even the damage in the world, if you could make enough money at it, you will be, you will feel free to do it. But I will put out there that we actually do have a type of economic classification that's outside of that. We haven't used it very often, but like it's really important that we we get more familiar with it. And for lack of a better term, you know, I, I call it kind of like the sacred, you know, fraction of things. Right. And for example, there are international laws against selling organs, right? Because even though organs would have a market price and a person could live without a kidney, right? It's possible. A lot of people do. Uh, then it would be a very dangerous world if you basically just had a price for all of that. And people might use that to go exploit the poor and be like, well, you know, you only make uh, $10 a day and your kidney would be worth this much, right? Like you start to get into pretty gruesome things if you don't have a fraction of the world that is just considered to be sacred. And I think everybody understands this. Like if you, if you had just had, you know, your first kid and you're like, you know, walking down the street and the kids in the stroller or whatever, and they're six months old or something. If somebody walked by and said, how much? You'd be like, no, this is not for sale. I know we live in a market economy. This is just off the table. We're not even a little bit okay with that. So like clearly every human mind understands this category. We pretend not to understand this category when we participate in a market economy. But I think we actually need to put some more things in this category including the sacredness of ecosystem metabolics as the source of all value creation in the economy. And this is why I say Epoch 2 is actually a pretty big shift. Now, if you get that done, then where you get financial leverage is not from the machine that can extract stuff twice as fast. The place where you get financial leverage is that a little bit of care in protecting or enriching the ecosystem metabolics leads to you know, massively healthier ecosystem metabolics, which creates way more wealth than the tiny bit of care that you put into there, right? And you think about all the folks that spend time on, on regenerative landscaping and agriculture, right? They'll spend a little bit of time with some earth moving in order to set up some swales, like in order to go change the, the you know, moisture transport about the landscape. And because of it, they are encouraging healthier ecosystem metabolics. Well, that one-time upfront cost could lead to major economic benefit, you know, year after year after year. And actually, the more that you make those verbs healthier, then the more, you know, it, it actually, unlike most mechanical things that where the maintenance cost gets higher over time, the, in this case, as the ecosystem gets healthier, the maintenance cost gets lower over time. So like the net productivity is higher, the maintenance cost is lower and lower. And in the crudest terms, you can call this a form of financial leverage. Because at the end of the day, then a bunch of money people are going to need to understand this. And they like to go hear words like financial leverage. And this is absolutely mappable into that, into that framework. But you need to first understand that the basic metabolic is sacred. And then once you get into that, then you can start saying like, okay, well, what is most honoring of the sacred metabolic? And what is the ways that we can work with, manage, you know, be, uh, be in concert with? these metabolics so that it gets way healthier because we're around as opposed to, oh, well, we cut down this forest, but the land can still take it. Yeah. Oh, we, we dug out this ore, but the land can still take it. We kill these pollinators, but the land can still take it. This is how we got into sustainability as a mindset where it's like, we knew we were destructive. So we're just like, let's not destroy it more. Let's bring it up to that level of, of a truce. But to me, it's like the truce is not stable. 
a tr the, the truths that you might come to you with a sustainability only mindset. Because like when somebody makes a sustainable business, it's almost like you have gotten to this balance point where market, tech, and ecology are all just kind of in enough balance. But but uh, tech and, and economy just keep on changing, right? So it's a very unstable truce. So you, you and your company might've gotten into a good spot in 1980, but then market and technology has changed by 1990. So your thing that might've been actually materially sustainable back then, then the truce is broken and you need to fix it again. And the truce is broken, you need to fix it again. So this is why I think we need a bigger jump than that mind state. You need to flip over to the other side where ecosystem metabolics are effectively sacred. And then you start thinking about leverage in terms of verbs as opposed to nouns. You know, yeah. like verbs on improving the health of that me me metabolism as opposed to nouns on intensity of extraction. Let Anyways, me, uh, sorry, let me yeah. interject with a quick question on this because I, it's such a beautiful articulation of, of vision and hopefully where we're headed with Epoch 2. And the way you just articulated it really complements the way you did in this other video we're making available. I have a question, which is you're, you're describing the, the what in a really beautiful and profound way. And I wanna ask about the how. So how do we mobilize capital into the behaviors and activities of Epoch 2 in such a manner that there's a, a pr sufficient profit motive there that the uh, investor class is typically looking for. Yeah, so you already mentioned one of the companies, Dendro Systems, and Dendro Systems does scalable ecosystem restoration. And, you know, oh, well, who's in the market for that? Well, our initial customers were these uh, kind of mining companies where they need to do it for regulatory reasons. But some of our more recent customers, it's getting more and more interesting where we had done a pretty extensive um, restoration of mangroves in Southern Myanmar. And what's the story behind it? Well, basically those mangroves initially were there, but the Myanmar government actually cleared them for quote unquote economic development. What actually happened in clearing them is they got rid of the source of subsistence fishing for a huge population in Southern Myanmar. And all of a sudden they had starving people on their hands. And they now needed to spend a huge amount in government services just to have the people not starve. Now you look at something like that and you're like, uh, well, that's chaos, right? So, so they basically came and it's like, you know, actually it would be cheaper to just fix the ecosystem than it would yeah. be for us to keep paying these. these. Now, now that's a government type situation. Right. And, uh, and I think governments, because uh, things are currently like externalized from industry are oftentimes going to be the folks that are actually first looking at doing some things in Epoch 2. But it doesn't mean that you aren't creating very clear economic value as mentioned there. Another one is that same company is now looking at restoring over 20,000 hectares of mangroves around the Abu Dhabi region. And yeah. what you may or may not know about it is they cleared their mangroves some decades ago as well. And you know they and Abu Dhabi has developed quite a bit you know over those decades. And because of it, people want to have beachfront property and they want to be able to go to the shore. But because they destroyed all these kind of natural erosion barriers, then they're needing to go out there and mine sand for literally billions of dollars in order to just dump them there and hope that it doesn't erode away, which of course it does. So you look at this as like, well, wouldn't it be way cheaper for you to actually fix this by spending $50 million putting the ecosystem back in place than it would be for you to spend billions of dollars uh, you know, trying to go and dredge sand and 
dump it in some other place that just erodes away. And we have this all over the place in the barrier islands along the eastern you know, uh, coast of North America, just everywhere this type of, you know, quote unquote business is happening that is honestly, once again, just both ecological chaos and economic chaos. Are you seeing uh, the insurance and reinsurance stakeholders uh, as being interested in some of these strategies? Because obviously around coastal areas, for example, when we get severe storms, there's tremendous property loss in many instances that would have been mitigated by healthy mangrove ecosystems. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. That's that's that is um, that is in the mix, and actually specifically to the insurance question, though this is not a mangrove project. Uh, the Nature Conservancy created the first uh, insurance policy for coral reefs. And basically the way that it was in, it, the first one launched in Quintana Roo, um, you know, stayed in Mexico uh, along the Gulf Coast. And, and the, basically the way that it worked was, look, we know that if a storm does a direct hit against a populated area along the shore, you know, in the U.S., it's like a 50 to $150 billion cost. A lot of that is borne by insurance, right? Some of it just goes to losses to property owners and all that kind of thing, but like a lot of it's borne by insurance. And because of this, like the Nature Conservancy has been working with insurance companies and basically saying, yo, what if, you know, we could um, set up a type of insurance? Because we know that having a really healthy coral reef not too far from, from the shore actually dramatically re re reduces wave energy because like coral reefs are almost kind of shaped like fractals. There's almost, and they're like really stuck on the ground as opposed to we try to like, you know, do civil engineering where we like make these big concrete jacks and we like drop them in the water. And then it's like, that's going to stay forever. That thing like weighs 20 tons. And then you <laughs> pop over there three years later and it's like 10 miles away from when you dropped it. And it's like, whoops. Now coral reef doesn't have that problem. A coral reef is meant to be in the waves and it absorbs a huge amount of wave energy, like 90% of that wave energy that might be coming from storms, both because of it's truly anchored to the ground um, naturally and because of intrinsic in its shape. And given this, the Nature Conservancy set it up where they said, look, Quintana Roo, if you get a cat three direct hit or above, then this insurance policy is going to pay out and it's going to pay out money to be able to restore that reef because your reef will be partially damaged in the process of kind of saving your town. But like you would save so much more money by being able to have that healthy reef as opposed to needing to deal with $50 billion of insurance payouts or damage on shore after a storm. And that that policy um, actually successfully paid out you know, five years ago. It actually only took two years before a cat three or above storm hit there because, hey, welcome to, welcome to the 21st century. But, um, but like now that that has happened, then the Nature Conservancy is now looking at expanding that to like 20, 20 to 25 more sites. Wow. And something like that is now looking into, well, there could be a business around the restoration of those reefs in order to encourage a better metabolic relationship, in this case with coastal hydrology, right? So uh, one of the, now this is not a portfolio company, Dendra Systems is a portfolio company, but this is a project that I am working on, you know, directly because I helped to start it as a company called ReefGen, which basically is a coral planting robots and seagrass planting robots. So they're basically uh, robots that are designed to be able to work in nearshore conditions, which is quite challenging because you're in the surf zone and water has a lot of mass so it wants to toss your robot around. But I can get into a lot of the details on how to make a stable platform that can 
geode seagrass and, and coral planting. But you know, as of today, ReefGen is the first, um, it, it, is, it, it is the program that has created the robot that has done the first live planting of corals back into a reef. And it is also the first that has uh, done the first live planting of seagrasses back into seagrass meadows. And they're able to do it at a cost structure and a speed that human teams you know, will not be able to match. And this is effectively technology, which is, which is investable, that is leaning into creating healthier metabolics. And mm-hmm. in the process of creating healthier metabolics, you're getting direct economic benefit. In this case, you know, saving a $50 billion bill. Yeah, I love this. I love this, Tom, and, and, and this big step that we're taking toward Epoch 2 um, and, that, and that folks like you are helping us uh, take uh, has me certainly excited and hopeful. And I'm curious now if you could walk us through Epoch 3, which is yet another big step. It's, right? it's a really big step. Yeah. Uh, and this one's extremely important. And Epoch 3, I don't have a better word for a phrase for it than the maximization of diverse nutrient flows. And the reason I call it that is the maximization of diverse nutrient flows is effectively what life has been trying to do on earth since the beginning. And honestly, probably all life in the universe is trying to do this. And what it means is you start with a world where you don't have, you know, an interesting amount of life. You don't have an interesting amount of nutrients being exchanged in order to go support life. So you go to the early earth right? During the Hadean period, then maybe the first bacteria were, were starting, you know, and then, and it was billions of years where all we had was like single celled organisms, you know, and uh, so not very much diversity and certainly not maximized relative to what could ultimately come on earth, right? Then you fast forward through the Cambrian explosion, all these sorts of things happen um, that where today, we have a very you know, biodiverse planet and every organism in an ecosystem, if the ecosystem is going well, actually helps to further maximize the movement of diverse nutrient flows, right? Basically the maximum amount of nutrient flow and the highest diversity of nutrient flow. That's what li- all of life is working toward. So this is almost like the, the parent metabolic above all metabolics. Like all these other natural metabolics, you know, kind of like roll up into life's you know, kind of quest to go do that. And if we were to start aligning our economy with that level of intensity, you know, with that level of understanding, uh, then, you know, there's a talk that was done by Richard Feynman, you know, back in 1959, I believe, and it's called Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And in that talk, because he's a physicist, he basically, uh, you know, highlighted the fact that, hey, you know, we've been building machines at a particular scale, like the scale of like a handheld thing, like, you know, a hammer or, or like a tractor or, you know, whatever, uh, like, like a, like a calculator, right? But actually we can make things way smaller than that. There's no reason that the, like the physics doesn't break down. If you made it a thousand times smaller, the physics doesn't stop working. If you make it, you know, you know, uh, 10,000 times smaller. So he basically posited that there was going to be entirely new economies that we create that could be highly beneficial if we were to explore the room at the bottom, if we could go make things smaller, but really useful and intricate at smaller scales. And he basically, you know, like predicted the entire semiconductor revolution and the digital revolution that came after that, right? And think about all the economic value that was created in that process. So 
not wrong at all. So I'm I basically in Epoch 3, I use a parallel metaphor, but instead of plenty of room at the bottom, I call it plenty of room in the middle. And just like Feynman, I'm, I'm formally trained in physics. So I think about it in the way that a physicist thinks about it, like mass energy balances, you know, time and space, all that kind of thing. So like the like one simple way to understand the earth system is that almost all the energy for life is coming from the sun. And these photons come from the sun. And after a little bit of resonance time on earth, they get radiated back out into space as infrared as heat, right? That's, that's how it always happens. Now, if you have a, and honestly, if it didn't happen like that, the earth would massively overheat. And if it, if it, if it didn't, uh, you know, if, if all the energy stayed, if the if more energy was emitted than was arriving from the sun, then the Earth would cool to like you know a, a ball of ice, you know, be totally, uh, you know, super cold. Like you know, what what cold means in space is very very cold. So ice is not even the right framing for it. But but you get it. Now, so this is always in balance. What the what the raising of temperature on the planet is is it means that the energy that comes here is resident with us a bit longer before it goes back out to space. But the inflow and outflow is still always the same. Now, given this, there's an interesting question of, of what you can do in the middle. Because I, I call the middle the time between the photon arriving and the photon you know, radiating back out into space in the form of, of infrared or heat. And there's a couple of different scenarios for the middle. Like the, the, in the middle, the photon could hit a rock and it could immediately go and radiate back out into space, in which case zero organisms were benefited by that. Right. Maybe if a lizard goes and lays on the rock later, I'd be like, oh, it warmed my belly a little bit. But you know, it's it's it there's plenty of times a lizard doesn't go lay on that rock. So like most of the time these photons, just zero organisms are benefited. Now let's upgrade that to a slightly better case. Imagine that photon arrives and in the middle, instead of hitting a rock and going away, it actually hits a solar panel. Well, now the people in a household, maybe a couple people, three, four, five people might benefit from it. And that's way better than zero organisms, right? But now imagine that that photon comes and hits a green leafy plant. And in the process, it, it helps to fuel the, the life of that plant. That plant, you know, the plant sugars that are synthesized from photosynthesis go down into the soil and drive the entire, you know, soil microbiome and the soil ecosystem. An herbivore might come by later and eat that plant. A predator might go and eat that herbivore. Like detrivores might eat that predator some point in the future. And now we're moving into the category of you know, dozens of large organisms and billions of tiny organisms, you know, might be benefited from this, these photons coming in and out with that at the middle. And if we start to understand that we can grow our economy by, by really enriching how much life is benefited in the middle, as opposed to benefit our economy by extracting the most in the least amount of time in order to make a couple humans the wealthiest, you know, that they possibly can be then we will have a such a different frame relative to the creation of value in an economy that, uh, and not only that diff, the, the, will the frame be different, but the frame will be intrinsically aligned with what life in the universe is trying to do, which is the maximization of diverse nutrient flows. So that's effectively what, what Epic 3 is about. And kind of, there's almost nothing that we're doing yet in that, in that area. Though in the talk, I suggest one, which, which is now... Uh, it, in that company, Miraterra. So there you go. Yeah, I love it, Tom. And, you know, we are uh, putting together a book on uh, regenerative finance, social enterprise, stewardship, philanthropy, and ecocene economics, uh, for which we're 
including a number of essays from various VIP thought leaders uh, on these topics. And of course, uh, you're contributing the essay called Plenty of Room in the Middle uh, for this project. And so we're, we're really excited. It's a bit of foreshadowing for our audience. This will be out hopefully um, in the next handful of uh, months here in uh, 2023. And um, I want to pause really fast to remind our audience this is the why on earth community podcast i'm your host aaron william perry today we're visiting for a second time with tom chi the technologist and financier founder of at one ventures focused on regenerative and stewardship oriented technologies i want to give a quick shout out to a few of our sponsors including chelsea green publishing uh, and I mentioned earlier in the discussion, uh, one of their authors, this is Ben Raskin, whose Woodchip Handbook uh, has a lot to tell us about working in our own gardens and our own orchards and uh, localized ecosystems with the soil ecology, the plants, the woody biomass, etc. And uh, we've got on our partners and supporters page links to Chelsea Green Publishing and other sponsors like Purium Organic Superfoods, Waylay Waters where you can get discounts on products. Chelsea Green is offering a 35% discount using the code YOE35. Um, Purium Organic Superfoods is offering $50 off your first order. I use these every day myself, love them. They're great. Keeping me hydrated and uh, full of good nutrients. And uh, wanna be sure to mention Dr. Bronner's as well as uh, our friends at SoilWorks, one of the social enterprises we stood up that uh, has blended uh, biodynamic preparations in a jar that you can use for your garden, your yard, your house plants even. And of course, a very special thank you to our ambassadors uh, who are very engaged in our work. We have a monthly online meetup, Regeneration Renaissance Roundtable Meetup, the first Sunday of each month. You can go to whyonearth.org/live to register for any of those. Those are at 11.33 a.m. Rocky Mountain time, Colorado time, um, if you'd like to join the first Sunday of each month. And many of our ambassadors uh, contribute to the Why on Earth community's work through our monthly giving program. And you can go to the donate button at whyonearth.org to uh, set up your own monthly giving if you'd like to do so. And if you give at the $33 or greater level, we'll be happy to send you jars of our waylay waters regeneratively grown biodynamically grown hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts as a thank you each month depending on the levels that you give so thanks to everybody who's helping support our podcast series and our stewardship regeneration and sustainability work at the why on earth community and of course we're focusing more and more on some of the important work being done around economics and economic systems, Tom, and you and I have had a chance to chat on this over the last few months. And I, I, I so appreciate uh, one really important fundamental fact here that you point out regarding whether or not economics is actually a science. And of course, many of us know it's been referred to as the dismal science. Uh, so Tom, please take it away and, and tell us what's going on with economics as a discipline. Yeah, so, you know, Economists like to refer to it as the dismal science, and they like to kind of point to their economic theories as basically being 
something foundational, like, you know, almost like a law of the universe. That's what they would hope it would be. In practice, uh, we've had the, you know, the quote unquote best economists with the best, you know, theories in all these different uh, roles and senior government roles and, and senior roles in terms of designing economies. And we just cannot get a stable one to be around for more than five, 10 years. So that doesn't strike me as like a, a law of the universe. Like when we learned, you know, how gravity works on earth, we could engineer with that literally forever. We use that to, to design bridges. We use that to, you know, like think about the movement of, of a ball when you're throwing sports, you know, throwing it around in a sport, like, like it works everywhere and it works really consistently. That's what happens when you do a good job at science. And yeah, in my own career, I was a scientist. I was an astrophysicist for six years. So I, I studied things in the natural world and I understood how they actually worked and we could repeatedly show that they kind of worked in that way. That's what science is like. Economics is not that at all. Like it clearly doesn't have those artifacts of like discovering a stable thing and that working forever, but it is actually a different sort of thing, which is not a bad thing at all. I like have a lot of respect for this other type of discipline, but it's not a scientific discipline. It's a design discipline. And the nature of a design discipline is you try to make things in a particular way, and then you notice how they work. And based on how they work, you fix the design. So if we if, if economics was a toaster and we designed a toaster a particular way, and then then 90%, like all of the uh all of the toast went to the top 1%, and like the bottom 10%, like you know, like shocked themselves and died, you'd be like, uh, this is a poorly designed toaster. I don't want 10% of people to like be gravely harmed by the thing that we designed, right? Like, I don't want that, you know, the toast only works for like one to 10% of the people, right? And then the other folks get okay toast. Like this would be very poorly designed. Now, because we believe it's a science or a bunch of the practitioners of it believe that's a science, it's like, guys, there's nothing you can do. This is just how toasters work. Like you just need to accept that 10% of you are going to get shocked and, and hurt by the thing. That's just how toasters work. You can't improve it. And it's like, this is the cost of not understanding what discipline you're in. Now, we've actually seen the economics and design discipline because in a lot of different countries around the world, they do it slightly differently from each other. And we'll see in some countries that, you know, their healthcare system works a lot better in terms of total outcomes across the populace. And in other countries, you know, like they, their, their labor laws work a lot better, you know, in terms of like being able to have people have you know, high integrity jobs that they can really build a craft in and really contribute through. And we can see in other places, you know, many opposite effects of that, which is effectively the information that you use to improve how you design. Like a professional designer doesn't have every one of the designs work perfectly the first time. Nobody does. In fact, any professional designer is very used to the fact that 90% of the stuff on the way there, you're going to throw out. Ultimately, you'll get to the design that works, whether it's a toaster or a car or like whatever you or a piece of software, you will eventually get to the design that works and like, you know, does something useful for people. But you are used to throwing 90% of it out. And what, you know, economists have become instead is they're insanely precious about their theories. They don't pay attention to the fact that it ends up hurting a bunch of people at the end. That's not interesting information to them because they believe they have the fundamental theory of so-and-so, which honestly is not even being a good scientist, by the way, because scientists do respond to data that is contrary to, to their theories. But it's like, because economists believe they are practicing some sort of dismal science, and I, I would say they're dismal at science and it's not a science, but like, you know, as opposed to just embracing the fact that you are designers, 
And as designers, you should expect to iterate. You should expect to throw things out. You should expect to learn from every type of design that's already deployed as opposed to saying, well, the USA is the best. We know how to run economies the best. And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people. Look, in terms of total GDP, sure. That's a thing. Nice job. Like that's one metric that you might get excited about. But once again, in like the the zeroth epoch of ecological sensibility, not even in the first epoch. So you're succeeding at something terrible, by the way. But anyhow, it's like, you know, one might say like, great, if you want to have a bunch of GDP, then there's some stuff that America is doing that works. But if you want to have like a, a prosperous civilization, then there's a lot of things that we're doing that don't work. And like it, a somebody that was coming at it with a design discipline sensibility is able to go and really synthesize all that information, take in things that counter their, their early ideas and theories that counter the early prototypes that they were working with, or even the previous version of their economic product, right? But like, let's get out there and treat it like a design discipline and iterate towards something that really works for people, as opposed to, you know, like putting these people in an ivory tower and believing them without, you know, like a second thought and then needing to have like massive political change in order to get a little bit of design done. Like imagine we had to march in the streets in order to iterate the next version of a toaster. Like we would have terrible toasters forever. And like right now we're in that state with our economy. Like we need, people need to march in the streets in order to try to like get slightly different people to design the next toaster. Let me ask you this, you know, you, you, you spend so much of your time and energy focusing on technologies, entrepreneurs, investors uh, that can really help push us forward through these epochs that you've articulated. I'm curious when it comes to some of the more social, cultural, even justice oriented questions that you're now referring to, what, what do you see as some of the design changes or opportunities, or we might even call them needs that, that we need to see a whole lot more of within our economic systems and structures and strategies that would help bring more balance to prosperity widespread among humanity and care of planet simultaneously? Like what's needed? Yeah, I'm glad that you that you asked that because one of the most um the most important idea in a design discipline is to understand your design constraints, right? And, and I, I ran a bunch of, you know, a product experience and, and user research teams and all these sorts of things. And, and also designers that a lot of times they came from an art background. And I would say, I would teach them that art is about freedom. Design is about constraints. If you don't understand constraints, you're not going to be able to do a good job of designing. Now, Relative to these kind of larger social issues, we should have as a constraint, whether you want to put it, you know, it, whether you, like in our previous part of the conversation, whether you want to take some aspects of, of natural metabolics and put it in a category of sacredness, well, putting it in a category of sacredness is effectively creating a type of design constraint around it, right? So that subsequent ecological, sorry, economical iterations can factor that in, in the design discipline of economics as a design constraint. One could also put in there like at various aspects of social justice that we've been waiting for and working on and also marching in the streets for once again, it's very slow to get one iteration to have a four year presidential cycle to get one iteration of a design, right? Designers actually would work way better when they can do five iterations in a week. So this yeah. is why it's taking so long to track, but like 
yes, as part of the next rev of, of economic design, we should have, you know, some way stronger foundations in terms of the design constraints that come from society. And the thing that has like really mucked with us beyond the mythos of, of economics as a science is this idea of like the invisible hand where it's like, oh, well, the invisible hand like cares about all people, lifts all boats. And it's like, we've seen many times that it's not true. So like clearly that theory is fully wrong. But to the extent that you believe in that theory, you absolve yourself of all these design constraints. Oh, there's people that are poor today, but the invisible hand will eventually lift their boats. So like, we don't need to design anything differently. So that's them basically failing a, a fundamental design constraint. Like a classic example of design constraint is cost, right? If a thing you know, is not affordable, then you failed at your design. But imagine you just got rid of that as a design constraint. And people are like, and like, whatever, maybe the, the drink you're drinking right now, it's like, okay, um, yeah, we made it the very most nutritious. It's only $40,000 an ounce. And it's like, you have fully failed at this, right? And this is what's happening right now because we haven't added a useful design constraint, both around ecological sacredness and also you know, societal sacredness. There's some things that we should actually just you know, deeply care about in society, and they should not be up on the auction block for debate. They should be things that are just understood to be human rights, societal rights, you know, at the purpose of a functioning society. And they go into your basic design constraints as opposed to in the mix of things that could just be lost as you decide to make it a different way. Yeah, that's great, Tom. And, and we're going to be sharing a profound exploration of those specific topics in this forthcoming book, everybody. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm so excited to share that with the world as soon as we're able to. And uh, before we wrap up, Tom, and, and go to our behind the scenes chat for our ambassador network. And by the way, if, if you would like to experience the behind the scenes uh, chats with Tom and our other podcast guests, along with a number of other video resources, uh, recordings from conferences and so on, and you'd like to become an ambassador, you can just go to the whyonearth.org website and click on the become an ambassador uh, link and page. And uh, Tom will do that in a, in a few minutes. But before moving into that, I want to ask you about artificial intelligence. It's on a lot of people's minds right now for obvious reasons, I think for many of us. Um, it's it's one of the themes that I wove into the novel Toss that I uh, wrote and was uh, and recently published. And, um, you know, this is potentially going to affect all of our lives in a profound way in the relatively near term. I'm curious, what is your view on what's going on with AI? I know you've been involved in some of the tech development over the years that is part of this process. Um, are you concerned? Are you optimistic? Is it a mix? What do you think about AI right now? You know, I think one of the main things is kind of lodged in your question, which is, oh, is this a thing that's coming that's going to affect all of our lives? And that kind of gives the sense of kind of a, like a, a enormous force, which is just kind of cannot be stopped. And I, I would already stop you right there, which is this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Like we make it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's like, yeah, I have a background. I worked on expert systems. I worked on, you know, um, natural language processing, which is kind of the predecessor to, to various, you know, types of, of large language models. I worked on 
you know, like AI, AI in the context of robotics, whether it's like machine vision, you know, like skillful actuation, all that kind of thing. So I've like, and also the term AI is like just a marketing term. Like really it is like, you know, dozens and dozens of te techniques, adversarial learning, like, you know, like you know, different sorts of, you know, uh, convolution, convolutional neural nets, like doesn't even matter so much. But like, I think like one should be a little wary because the marketing term is being used to try to telegraph a type of inevitability to it, which is not necessarily the right relationship to have to this. If this is like a wave that's inevitably coming and we just need to get out of the way, then that's a very, that framing is very dangerous. If you understand it as, no, we make this tech and we have the ability to already make decisions on where we want to spend time making this tech, then you can end up in an extremely different spot with this. And, and actually there's a real interesting story. Like I've, uh, you mentioned in the intro, I worked on the self-driving car uh, at Google and actually helped to get the program off the ground because I was one of the the execs at, at uh, Google X starting from the founding days. And um, yes, like there was this point, like after I had left Google X plus a couple of years where I got contacted by the government of Singapore. And the government of Singapore came out to talk to me about, you know, self-driving cars because they kind of felt like, well, okay, once again, this is like inevitable thing. It's going to kind of take over. But this is what they told me. They said, hey, you know, Singapore, like we, we want to like do right by economic development, but we also want to do right by our people. And right now our best analysis, like we've like done an analysis of all the different jobs in Singapore and which classes of jobs are consistently lowest paid. Because Singapore is like a fixed area. It's almost like a little island, right? And like, given that, then like they can't like end up economically developing more by exploiting a bunch of physical resources on their land. They just have this little spot. They can only build the city so tall, so they can only fit so many people in it. So they realized that the only way that they could make anything more prosperous is for every citizen in Singapore to be more prosperous. So they basically came to me with the following analysis. They said, Look, we've analyzed all the different major job types in Singapore, and we found out that actually the largest class of jobs that is consistently low paid is taxi drivers in Singapore. Huh. So we've already created, and this is like, you know, eight or nine years ago, I had this conversation. We've already, and this is Singapore eight or nine years ago, we've already created a retraining program for anybody that wants to like get out of taxi driving and wants to have a more lucrative career. Like we've already started that training program to be able to create a way that they can kind of pull themselves up with a little bit of government help on the education side. And as we reduce the supply of cab drivers, we want to go replace it with self-driving cars. Well, that's a civilization that is choosing to engage in AI-like technology in a way that is deeply thoughtful relative to helping their populace. As opposed to the US, it's like, AI is coming, everybody watch out, your jobs are going to be gone tomorrow. It's like, oh my gosh. Right. And look, these were all choices. These were design choices that were made by the government. And if you treat it like some kind of uh, inevitable force that no human being has influence on, then you'll think about it in the wrong model. Mm -hmm. If you understand everything that we're doing in AI is something that is a set of human choices, and we can actually align those human choices to benefit you know, ourselves in nature as opposed to destroy ourselves in nature, mm -hmm. then at least we got a shot. But at the particular moment, I am very concerned about the overarching narrative. I'm yeah. very concerned that we're going to put 
the wrong tools in the wrong place. And the reason I'm concerned with that is we already have. Like the most sophisticated AIs on the planet right now are trading stocks and serving you ads. And the trading of stocks can absolutely damage the physical economy. You can you can do a flash crash on the cost of coffee, you know, in 200 milliseconds that basically puts all these farmers in the developing world like, you know, out of business or or leads to them like in food insecurity for the next 6 months. Just because of what happened in 200 milliseconds because of a, a dueling trading algorithm that was running advanced AI, right? Mm-hmm. So we basically put it in a spot where it can damage the physical economy already. And relative to ads, we actually put it in a spot where it can damage the cognitive economy, right? So I like to, uh, you know, kind of kind of lay it out simply in it, in so much that in the 20th century, we spent most of our techn- technological effort learning how to mine out all the physical resources of the planet, whether that's oil and gas, whether it's you know m- you know mined materials like you know, like uh, metals that sort of thing, whether it's timber, all that kind of thing. We spent most of the 20th century strip mining the physical resources of the planet, and it looks like we're lining up the 21st century to strip mine the cognitive resources of the planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a finite number of people on the planet. We're going to have a finite number of coherent thoughts in our lives. And to the extent that those are poisoned by advertising, poisoned by misinformation, poisoned by things where some other person gets an economic benefit on the other side of it, which is true in strip mining as well. But like doing it in a thoughtless way, like like ocean trawling, like strip mining, like all these ways that we've done it, we're taking the same metaphor and now we're using it in this new plane of existence. And AI is going to be extremely central to the strip mining of the cognitive resources of the planet, unless we start thinking about it differently very soon, because it's already in a dangerous spot. It's so important, Tom. In my book, Why on Earth, there's a chapter called Think, in which I speak about the ecology of thinking. And I I so appreciate you connecting those dots. Um, And thank you for your your commentary on AI and other uh, important and related uh, things going on in our world right now. And uh, looking at the time, I guess we ought to wrap up our episode this time around, Tom. I appreciate this is our second chat together on the Why on Earth Community podcast. Um, and before we sign off and switch over to our short behind the scenes segment, I just want to give you the floor if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience. And, and once again, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I guess there's not too much to say. If you want to follow my work, you can go to www.tomchi.com. Or if you want to check out what our, our venture firm does, then it's um, at one ventures, A-T-O-N-E, ventures.com. And yeah, you'll be able to look in the portfolio and see lots of really, uh, you know, really interesting you know, investments that we're doing to be able to, our tagline is help humanity become a net positive nature. So our you'll be able to see a bunch of investments that are kind of tailored toward that. If you're looking for jobs, you can go to jobs.atoneventures.com. If you're a investor that invests in funds, then feel free to reach out to me and, you know, happy to go and, and look at that relative to, you know, either this fundraise, we got about two and a half more months or, you know, subsequent one. And, um, and also if you like know of really compelling things we should be looking at, then always happy to, to take a look. Yeah, that's wonderful, Tom. And we'll be sure to include those links in the uh, show notes as well. So uh, thanks so much, my friend. It's great chatting with you. And uh, 
look forward to our continued uh, collaboration going forward. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.